This is the A Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, June 20th. And now, please rise for the singing of Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. And this is a weekly baseball podcast. Uh, Paul and I reside in Champaign, Illinois. We are twin brothers. Yeah, Paul, happy happy Father's Day. We're recording this on Sunday. Uh, so this is your first uh, Father's Day as an actual father. So uh, happy Father's Day. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's a weird feeling to be on the receiving end of Father's Day uh, salutations. So... And happy Father's Day to our father. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, preparing for the podcast, do you have any favorite uh, dad baseball memories? Uh, just kind of the mundane ones. Coach for a Little League team, uh, would play catch, throw us grounders. Uh, he was a lefty, and all his kids are righties. Um, he's a White Sox fan. Obviously, you're a White Sox fan. I'm a Cubs fan, so let us uh, kind of make our own baseball decisions, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, without him, we wouldn't, I don't think we'd be uh, doing a baseball podcast. We owe it all to you, Dad. My favorite was uh, in 2005, the White Sox won the World Series, sharing a hug after uh, the four-game sweep of the Astros. Really? I believe I slept. I fell asleep on the couch. Was that the game? Uh, I think you, you fell asleep for game three, because that was like the 14-inning game. inning game? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so happy Father's Day to fathers everywhere. Uh, I guess you'll be listening to this the week after Father's Day, so hope you have a good week following your special day. All right, Paul, we've got lots of stuff in this week's episode. The biggest one, uh, we are interviewing Will Leach, or I am interviewing Will Leach. Um, about and, his, and I'm taking credit for it. Yep, about his book. It's about um, uh, fathers and sons and relationship that he had with his dad, has with his dad. Um, they're big uh, Cardinal fans, and it's just a great book. Um, so I talk with him later on in the podcast about that. So uh, if you're listening to this because you want to get to it, feel free to skip ahead, or you can get to know us for a little bit and then listen to the interview. I might go so far as to say that Will Each is the most entertaining podcast guest I've ever listened to. Hmm. I feel like he's just full of interesting opinions and takes and just yep. so... Uh, well um, thought out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, another big sports story right now, Paul, is the NBA Finals. So yeah, I was game, gonna... game seven is tonight, Sunday night. Uh, we should make predictions so that people can tell if they can trust us with sports uh, sports takes. So who you got in game seven? Uh, I want the Warriors to win, but I think uh, the Cleveland train has too much momentum. So you're taking the Warriors? Or the you're taking the Cavs? Yeah. How about you? I'm taking the Warriors. Really? Yeah, their backs have been up against the wall a couple times, especially in that Thunder series and uh, at home. I think they get it done tonight. I don't think we've seen them break like we did in Game 6. That Steph outburst, Clay leaving the court early. I don't know. It's just a little, kind of a, a different side of the Warriors that I hadn't seen. Definitely. Even in the Thunder series, they just seem so calm. Yeah, the game definitely has ramifications. Uh Big ramifications. I think if the Warriors don't win, uh, this season isn't thought of uh, down the road. 
um, or it will be thought of, but just kind of as, oh, a team that was really good in the regular season, but fizzled out in the, the playoffs, kind of like the Mariners. Well, it might be thought of as like the bronze yeah, and that, crowning achievement. Yep, so just so many things on the line, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, so much so that I might miss some of the Cubs-Pirates game on Sunday <laughs> Night Baseball. The ratings for the, the Cubs-Pirates probably won't be the best. Does uh, watching the Warriors struggle through the finals make you squirm at all as a Cubs fan? I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess it should. In the baseball playoffs, generally, it's just a crapshoot, and uh, the favorites have a slight advantage, but uh, not near as much as the NBA or mm-hmm. NFL. So yeah, it definitely should make me... Uh, stressed and uh, anxious as a Cubs fan. Uh, I asked that question as a setup to our Nelly fun fact. He wrote a song called Heart of a Champion. Perhaps you've heard it before, Paul. Only about a million times. Uh, it borrows the well-known beat of the NBA on NBC theme music by the one and only John Tesh, and it was used from 1992 to 2002. The name of the song is Round Ball Rock. Um so that's Nelly, that's kind of like the beat of the song, and we're going to play it for, uh, in a second here. But that's kind of the beat of it. Uh, Nelly, of course, builds off of that and writes this song, Heart of a Champion, in 2004. This song was played before every Yankees game from 2004 to 2009. And, special to us here in uh, Champaign, Paul, as Illinois basketball fans, it was used before the 2005-2006 Illinois basketball games by the hmm. Orange Crush the cheering section for the Illinois basketball team. I wonder how uh, royalties work for that. Like if they had to buy the rights to the John Tesh song? I'm sure they did, right? Yeah, in the Wikipedia there was no mention of uh, you know, copyright infringement or anything like that. So they must have uh, must have done that. But anyway, uh, we're going to play Heart of a Champion. The lyrics to this song are amazing. They fit in the following people. Uh, or Nelly fit in the following people into the song. Magic Johnson... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy, General George Custer, <laughs> Julius Peppers, Michael Redd, twice, wow. Peyton Manning, Ray Lewis, Allen Iverson, and Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, so without further introduction, here is Heart of a Champion. There you go. Great song. Heart of a Champion. Great song. Paul, I put more money in the community than you got in your budget. (laughs) 
I love it when he starts impersonating fans cheering his name. The Nelly Nelly. Nelly Nelly. That was the Nelly fun fact this week. It will link to the full song if you want to go and watch it on YouTube. We should um, also link to the John Tesh video. Absolutely. Of uh, dribbling an imaginary basketball while playing mm-hmm. that song on a cruise, I believe. Uh, all right. So moving on, our recap of the DC trip, as promised last week on the podcast. Uh, Paul, what uh, what are your takes on the rest of our DC trip after we recorded the podcast? Great trip. Uh, I put it up right up there, second behind Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. Um, really fun trip. This was, I think, probably the most like uh, touristy city we've been to. Uh, other trips have revolved more around baseball, but this, you know, we were visiting the Smithsonian. The Holocaust Museum was great. Um, that would probably be the most memorable for me. But the Lincoln Monument is pretty cool too. Yeah, especially compared to the Washington Monument. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was an awesome trip. Uh, I got to see Scherzer strike out uh, eleven guys, and I think the Cubs had sixteen strikeouts that game. Yep. Yeah, the Cubs and Nats. Uh, we went to two of their games. They split, and then we also saw the Nats beat the uh, Phillies on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Worth walk off. We missed the uh, Nationals walk off on Wednesday when Worth uh, gave a pretty weird. Uh, interview? Did you see that? I did. Yeah. It'll think, be. Do you think he was drunk? No, I just think worth. I mean, look at the guy. He's pretty weird. Uh, I know the Nationals have a really good record. What second best in the National League? Yeah, they're only third best in baseball. Four games behind the Cubs. I am not all in on the Nats being uh, like a World Series contender. Like their lineup outside of Harper and Murphy is Ramos. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he'll keep that pace up throughout the year. I don't know. I mean, I think I think they have a decent shot to win the East, but yeah, I'm not all in on them hmm. being a, a big contender for the World Series. Yep, and actually, I hadn't been to a Nationals Park before, uh, and so this was my 15th stadium that I've been to. Paul, you might have been to a few more. Um, uh, I guess 16th stadium, if you include the old Cardinal Stadium, old Bush Stadium. So I thought I'd rank quickly rank uh, my top, or the, the 15 stadiums I've been to from 1 to 15. So, starting at 15, so these are the, the worst stadiums I've been to. Number 15 is Turner Field. Number 14 is Progressive Field, the Indians uh, Stadium. Number 13, I'm sorry, Paul, U.S. Cellular Field. Number 12 is Rogers Center. 11 is Chase Field, where the Diamondbacks play. Number 10 is the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. Number 9 is Miller Park. Eight is the Nationals Park, so right in the middle of the pack. Uh, number seven is Comerica in Detroit. Uh, number six is Bush. Five is Coors Field. Number four is Camden Yards. Number three is Fenway Park. Number two is PNC Park. And number one, of course, the Crown Jewel, Wrigley Field. It's a pretty solid list. I would. Uh, I didn't think the Nationals Park was all that impressive. I, I mean, I think it's pretty... I, I have it in the middle of the pack for sure. I think Cincinnati's park is better. No. Really? Nope. The Nationals Park, like, there's nothing noteworthy about it. It's got the high high fence and right. Mm, I, I kind mean, of a cool area. I like Cincinnati's park better, and I actually like U.S. Cellular better, but that's just me. No unbiased person would go to those two parks and say the White Sox is better. I think you would walk away and say they are very similar. You, But you think people would say... U.S. Cellular is a better park. Um, no, I, they're very similar. I think that's what they would say. I, I don't think so. 
All right, so moving on to uh, actual baseball that was played, our Matt Bush update. We uh, we took last week off because of the Brothers Roadship podcast, but uh, three more scoreless appearances this past week. So on the season, 15 and two-thirds innings pitched, 12 hits, 1.15 ERA, and a 0.96 whip. Paul, mm-hmm. we have to start asking, is Matt Bush a 2016 All-Star? Comeback player of the year candidate for sure. Uh, it would be such an amazing story if he uh, if he made the All Star team. He won't and probably shouldn't. So you're asking that question after three weeks ago. You were asking if he should be banned from baseball for hitting. Uh... Perhaps that was a bit of an overreaction, but uh, I still think he should have been uh, reprimanded. Yeah, and the Rangers are they're the second best team in baseball. Yep, I looked up uh, two records. I actually tweeted this out um, from our uh, Foot in the Box Twitter account on May 18th. The Rangers had a 22 and 19 record, decent, but uh, they were right around 500. Since May 18th, they're 22 and six, and the Phillies on May 18th had a 24 and 17 record. Since May 18th, they are six and 22, so just the opposites. Um, so those teams are going in uh, very much different directions, and people expected that. People expected the Rangers to be better than 500, and people expected the Phillies to be awful, which they have been um, the last month. But the Rangers' success is without you, Darvish, and uh, Prince Fielder, essentially. A good Prince Fielder. Yeah, they've had some good young players contribute. Paul, the White Sox are struggling. Yeah, just got swept by the Indians. Let's not go there. Uh, James Shields. Yeah, I feel yeah like let's, ha- not, let's not go there. <laughs> well, just to get this off, we, we can't not talk about this. In three starts, do uh, you know how many innings he's pitched, Paul? Uh, six. Eight and two-thirds. Yeah. Uh, how many hits do you think he's given up in the, those eight innings? Um, 16. 24. Yikes. How many earned runs in eight and two-thirds? Uh, 21. Yep. That's a 3.8 whip. So James on, Shields on, has given up in his last four starts uh, as many runs as Jake Arriott has given up in his last 26 starts. Dang. Yeah, so three 3.8 whip. And a 21.81 year. It's unprecedented. I know some people, uh, and I agree with these people, say that the White Sox should have seen his FIP or like they should have looked at some advanced stats and seen that it was. He's either injured or he's tipping pitches. Right. Like you don't see this dramatic of a drop off. He's a major league pitcher that has made an all star game. If you watch those games, he's not getting anyone out. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, either injury or tipping his pitches, I would say. Paul, I, I do have some. One encouraging stat for you with the White Sox, and for our father if he's listening as a White Sox fan, they've played the second most games of any team against teams over 500. Yeah, yeah, I saw you tweet that out. That doesn't provide me much comfort because the White Sox are in a division in which well, the whole whole American League is above 500 essentially. Right, and so the White Sox are contributing to the Indians and the Royals being over 500. Yeah. So, but they've also probably had a harder schedule than other teams in the. Like they've had a harder schedule than uh, the Twins, for instance, who would be contributing to that as well, and the Tigers. Um, so, forty-nine of their sixty-eight games have uh, been against teams that were over five hundred. Compare that against the Cubs, and only twenty of their sixty-six games have been against teams over five hundred. And like you were saying, uh, if you're a good team, you contribute to that in the opposite direction. So, the Cubs, by beating other teams, uh, make those teams under five hundred. But it is it is a stat um, that could uh, could say something about the Cubs' strength of schedule 
in the White Sox strength of schedule so far. Uh, one other White Sox thing, and then we'll move on. Uh, I can't help but think what could have been for this year's team if they would have made uh, better free agent signings. So they put themselves in a bad position by not drafting well and having to sign free agents every year to fill a lot of holes. This year, though, they could have filled those pretty cheaply. So instead of signing uh, Jimmy Rollins, Austin Jackson, and trading for Brett Laurie, they could have signed Ian Desmond, who got one year, $8 million. With the Rangers, he could have played shortstop, second, or outfield for the White Sox. He's been playing outfield for the Rangers this year. He is hitting 311 with a 363 on base and 500 slugging, 10 home runs, 12 steals, and a 2.9 war. Uh, been a very, very good player. Chase Utley for the Dodgers has cooled off a bit, but he only got one year, $7 million. He has a 353 on base and has been a 1.5 war player. And Dexter Fowler, who signed for one year and $13 million. He has a 398 on base percentage, uh, seven home runs, and a 2.4 war. Uh, so if you combine all three of those players, their wars are 5.8, where Laurie, Rollins, and Jackson have been combined negative 0.1 war. Yeah. Um, those players that the White Sox signed are, are all well below what the, these guys I'm talking about in terms of money. Um, Laurie, Rollins, and Jackson signed for $12 million total, where those other three guys were well over that. But... Um, I guess had you known about LaRoche's money coming off, um, mm-hmm. you could have reallocated that better with even two of those three guys, and you'd be looking at a much better season right now. Yeah, I mean, I wanted them to sign Fowler, but the thing about free agent signings, it, to use the word again, it's a crapshoot. Um, mm-hmm. It just Ian Desmond, his numbers the last uh, two seasons were pretty average, mediocre, not great defensively, and like who saw this this type of a start coming. So mm-hmm. when you don't draft well and you don't have depth, it's pretty hard to, to just guess right every year. Yep, I agree. I agree. Uh, one uh, listener question, didn't email, but more of a tweet at us. Not more of a tweet, it was a tweet at us. We've uh, kind of got a reputation for hating on Royals fans for the way they vote for All-Star games. This year, the Cubs fans are uh, trying to become the new Royals fans, uh, right now, five Cubs position players would be starting the All-Star game in the eight positions. Uh, it's Ben Zobris at second, Chris Bryant at third, Anthony Rizzo at first, Dexter Fowler in the outfield, and Addison Russell at shortstop. And so Brian asked us about, uh, you know, if we were outraged about this as we had been about the Royals last year and, and uh, so far this year. And I will say, uh, I'm not as outraged because I think four of those five players deserve the spot they have. Russell is the only one that should not be starting. Um, but Zobris, Bryant, Rizzo, and Fowler, in my opinion, are all all-stars. You could make arguments against, I think, uh, pretty much all of them as as they shouldn't be starting. You could make the argument. Um, Probably go Arnato at third and Goldschmidt at first. Goldschmidt, he hasn't had a great season. Um but yeah, I guess I haven't looked into who I would pick as my first baseman over Rizzo. Um, but yeah, Goldschmidt maybe. I'm trying to think of other players. Um, yeah, Murphy at second base over Zobris is probably the better move. Zobris has been um, in a slump lately. And then in the outfield, I'm sure there's three better candidates uh, from a stat perspective than Fowler. Russell should not be starting, but other than that, those four guys uh, deserve to have people voting for them. So... 
my my beef with the Royals fans last year and, and this year has been they're voting for guys that have no business being up there. And Soler I guess, apparently is right off the cusp of of starters, and so that's a case where I would be more outraged. You know, Soler sitting like 220 uh, has been hurt most of the year. He does not deserve to be in the in uh, anyone's All Star game ballot. So you that, see, that's that's more of the outrage. It's the Omar and Fates of the world, and not so much the guys like uh, Fowler, Rizzo, Bryant, and Zobrist. And Infante, or I mean, the Royals did us a favor, and they um, designated Infante. Was he on the ballot again this year? He was third <laughs> uh, behind Altuve and somebody else at second. Yeah. Yep. And if you're curious about our All Star game selections, we will reveal those in a couple weeks in our midseason podcast, and we'll. Revisit a lot of our preseason predictions as well. Always a fun episode. And by always, I mean last year it was fun. <laughs> all right, well, that does it for our banter segment, unless you have anything else, Paul. Nope, that's all I got. All right, well, we're going to switch it up a little bit this week. Uh, our first segment is going to be our interview with Will Leach. Um, and then after that, we'll do some of our normal segments. But uh, first, our interview with Will Leach. Interviewing Will Leach has been on my bucket list since we began the podcast. Uh, he is the founder of Deadspin, um, but now writes for several different outlets, uh, Sports on Earth, Bloomberg Politics, New York Magazine, New Republic. He also has two podcasts, uh, two uh, podcasts that he co-hosts. One of them is about baseball, the Will Leach Experience, and the other one uh, reviews movies. It's Grierson and Leach. Um, and uh, the movie one is a lot of fun. Uh, you can actually review that podcast and uh, mention your um, favorite movie or a movie you want them to review, and they will review that movie on their podcast. Kind of a neat thing there. Will is a graduate of the University of Illinois. He grew up in Mattoon, Illinois, which is about 50 minutes south of Champaign. Uh, and so I've always uh, just gravitated towards his work, and he's a phenomenal writer. Um, and like Paul said earlier, very good guest on podcast and other things like that. Uh, will is the author of several books, the one that I am interviewing him about today is called Are We Winning? And it was written in 2010. I would strongly encourage you to check that out. And I would also strongly encourage you to follow him on Twitter at William F. Leach. That's uh, L-E-I-T-C-H, William F. Leach. So here is Will Leach. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today, Will. I, uh, I really enjoyed your book, Are We Winning? And uh, you've been a favorite writer of mine for several years now, so it's a uh, it's an honor to have you on our small little podcast, and appreciate you doing it. Oh, please, it's 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 my pleasure. I uh, I'll talk about uh, uh, are we winning? My my uh, my that that was my always joke. I remember uh, Chuck Klosterman wrote uh, talked about how uh, one of his books was his. Pinkerton, which is to say it was his, his like Weezer's album, Pinkerton. It was mm-hmm. the one that was a little harder to, for people to get into. It didn't sell as well as the others, but it was the one he's probably most proud of. I always feel like Garby Winning is that book for me, so I'm always happy to talk about well, it. Well, Klosterman on the back says it's the best book about Midwestern fatherhood ever written by a childless man in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, which is funny. Now that is very inaccurate. inaccurate. Not only am I not a child, childless man, I'm not in Brooklyn anymore either. So, uh, so now, now I now I have to compete against all those people that have children in Athens to compare how it is about other books about fatherhood. I don't know anybody here in Athens that's written a book about fatherhood, but uh, I'm sure somebody probably has. All right. Well, uh, throughout the book, there are a couple main themes, and I kind of want to focus on those two themes with my questions. Um, on the on the podcast here, the first theme is about the relationship between a father and son, 
and that's why I wanted to have you on um, around Father's Day here. Um, but specifically, the father-son relationship as it regards or relates to baseball. And for those that haven't read the book, can you describe uh, the rela- relationship you have with your dad and how baseball fits into that? Yeah, and, you know, I want to make it clear, by the way, that like you know, certainly, I, the, my story is one of, uh, of of with my father. But you know, one of the nice things, uh, not only while I was writing the book, but since the book has come out, uh, you know, uh, each chapter starts with someone talking about a story. Or that they had with their parents, and sometimes that's their father, sometimes that's their mother, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a daughter talking about. Like you know, I always feel like, like you know, I didn't. Uh, I'm very lucky that I had a good relationship with my father and was able to watch baseball with him. But I know a lot of people that have that relationship with their mothers, or a lot of mm-hmm. people have that relationship with their daughters. So, um, or with their two moms, for that matter, or their two dads. So I feel like you know, I, I certainly didn't. Um, I, I wanted the book to be universal uh, in, in addition to just kind of my perspective. But, yeah, the basically we are both uh, – when this book came out, which has been a few years now, uh, it wasn't just quite a pejorative to all call someone a Cardinals fan. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, yeah, it's uh, my father and I are, are, are big Cardinals fans. We're from central Illinois, which is about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from St. Louis. And uh, – you know, I think that uh, our relationship, you know, he, my dad's an electrician, I'm a writer. Uh, we obviously have very different views of the world in a lot of ways, but baseball has kind of been the central organizing principle uh, for our relationship now for, I mean, I've just turned 40 this year, so really my entire life. And, you know, for me, that uh, the game, this the book revolves around a game that I went to with my father and my friend Mike Cetera uh, in 2008, who was a diehard Cubs fan. That's my first time my father had been to Wrigley Field. So it basically just describe every inning, every half inning is its own chapter to describe a different part of baseball, a different part of like family. And, mm-hmm. and it tries to weave in the idea of it is to weave in, uh, kind of what's great about baseball and what, and how it connects to the way we interact with our families. And, and in my case, fathers, but generally the idea is just, uh, generally how kind of it, how intertwined and inextricably intertwined it is with, with our family lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess more broadly, uh, what makes those relationships so special in baseball compared to other sports? You know, obviously football and soccer and basketball and, and hockey, um, they're bonding uh, sports yeah. for, for families. But what, what makes baseball so special, I, I guess, to your family and more broadly to, to families everywhere? Yeah, you know, my father and I are also into Illinois men's basketball. Ball and I'm even, I've even tried to start and get into the Knicks uh, the last <laughs> couple of years because he's never had an NBA team. Uh, but yeah, the, I think one of the things that baseball really lends itself to this, uh, I think sometimes people think it's like a uh, old timey America and the way things used to be like a nostalgic thing. But I don't think that's it at all. The thing that's great about baseball is, I mean, you like it's not like baseball is a game where there is a lot of inactivity and then there is sudden activity and. You know, if you watch a football game, the whole thing is just generated to invade your eyeballs at all times. Basketball is a constant back and forth and a constant stream. And those things are very enjoyable. I enjoy those. Uh, I love those sports. and I love watching those sports with my dad. But to me, you know, I feel like baseball is a sport that because, it, I mean, it's frankly, it's slower. And, you know, I think it's a reason some people don't like baseball. But to me, that is something that, you know, you don't go to a baseball game and not talk to the people you're with mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you're in a basketball game or if you're in a football game you could just like be screaming the entire time i've sat next to people at football games and not been able to hear a word they're saying the entire time it's mm-hmm. like being in an airplane hangar or, or maybe at a uh um, at a rock concert or something and for ba- you know baseball is a game that is you know it's every day it's perpetual you know they talk about baseball being eternal and i think that's not quite the right word i think i think it is perpetual it is always going on and i think that is 
you know, p- people have this idea that, of baseball as a metaphor for life, but I, you know, I, and I, I don't know if that's true, but I think the one way that it relates to life and is similar to life is that it is just constant. It's just every day is a little different, but none of them, none of them are too over the top exciting, but none of them are too terrible. And, you know, you, it becomes part of the background. You know, baseball is a sport that you watch with one eye on it and one eye on something else in a lot of ways. And I think that's okay. I think that's actually a feature, not a bug. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I think it lends itself very well, well then to, uh, to, to become kind of interwoven in people's families because it's just always around whether people are all sitting down to concentrate uh, and tailgate and scream at the television like, like football or whatever they would do, would do with other sports. I kind of like the idea that it's the sport that's not really an event. It's just this thing that's constantly going. And I think it, because of that, it becomes even more interwoven into people's lives. That's a, that's a good point. It's like a more natural reflection of life than this out-of-body experience of, of football or basketball. It's much more relatable, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think, and again, I like the event of other sports too. Like that is enjoyable, but I, mm-hmm. I like you know, baseball is always there, and uh, and you know, just like family, and sometimes, sometimes uh, your family drives you nuts. Sometimes baseball <laughs> drives you nuts. Baseball drives, uh, certainly has provided me much pain in my lifetime, but uh, mm-hmm. but you know, so is my family, and I, I still love them too. Yep. All right, my last uh, Father's Day related question: uh, Do you have a favorite father son playing combo? In uh, baseball history, I thought of, obviously, the Bonses or Griffey's, Boone's, uh, Dave and Chris Duncan, uh, Adam and Drake LaRoche. What's your your personal favorite? Oh, well, yeah, clearly – Adam and Drake LaRoche, because one is a great, was a good, was a pretty good first baseman, but the other one was a leader of men, despite being like 12. You wrote, um, you wrote a phenomenal article about uh, how it was idiotic to uh, pull your son, or to pull him out of public school, um, or pull him out of school, and how baseball was like the classroom. I uh, I really enjoyed that. I mean, that. LaRoche le- legitimately said, my son will learn more in a baseball clubhouse than he will in a classroom, which as someone that, you know, again, I've not played professional baseball, but I've certainly been around my fair share of, uh, of clubhouses professionally and I, and in, in high school, uh, playing baseball. That is literally one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> the only type of person that would say something like that is someone who was in fact raised in a baseball clubhouse. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that, uh, it is, uh, that to me, to, you know, one of the things that's hard to reconcile sometimes when you uh, love baseball a lot, whether you write about it or you're just a fan, is that you know you are in a lot of ways more intellectually invested in this game than the people who play it are. <laughs> sometimes yeah. a hard thing to wrap your mind around. That you know, I you know, I remember a I wrote a piece for the New York Times in like 2005 about after after Boston. Uh, uh, so it's in 2008. It was 2009. It was the other one in the World Series. Mm-hmm. And so it was 2007. That's right. And Manny Ramirez, when they were down 3-1 to the Indians, they interviewed him after the game. And he said, he said, yeah, you know, it was a frustrating loss. Uh, but, you know, if we lose and we don't win the series, you know, it's fine. We'll just go back to our regular lives. And people were furious. <laughs> people were furious because no one thinks of it that way. That That's the fear, right? The fear is that we care about this more than they do. And so the idea that uh, uh, the number of things, the more I talk, talk to athletes, and there's some very thoughtful, very intelligent, very nice athletes. I don't mean to imply that they're all like dolts or something. But certainly the amount of emotional investment that we uh, we as fans put into these things a lot of times, it's more than players. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. that can be a little worrisome. So as does your question about fathers, and sons i'll say that like you know i um um i i tend to for whatever reason i find myself gravitating more to brothers uh in baseball and i wonder if that's because it seems 
a lot of times when when a father and son like you see a lot of sons of players and it makes you a little sad because they're not even close to the player that their parent is and you wonder you know are they only here because of that would they have been happier if they had done something else you know your Dale Barras your Pete Rose juniors uh and, and so on you know i think that there is always a certain like I, I don't want my kid. I have two sons, and I do not want them to be writers. <laughs> and not because it's a difficult career, though it is, and not because it's a, there's not a lot of money in it, though there isn't. It's more that like I want them to do whatever they personally want to do, and do not want them to be swayed by what I'm doing. And every time I see a son, you know, my father was is an electrician. You know, he was he's retired now, but he was an electrician. And, you know, he was baffled as to why his son was always writing in his trapper keeper all the time and, and keeping all these, these notes about baseball and movies and tracking electoral vote, electoral vote counts <laughs> and so on. I, he had no idea why, why I would have cared about any of those things. Uh, but he recognized that, like, you know what? Uh, that's exciting to me. It's exciting to him and therefore it's exciting to me. So I'm excited. Uh, my son, my older son, William, is really into baseball. Literally, the first thing he asked me when I wake up in the morning is, did the Cardinals win last night and what was nice. the score? Which is fine. I'm totally okay with that. But I hope that does not lead him. I want him to be a Cardinals fan. If he became a Cubs fan, he's got to find his own place to live. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want him to be an actual uh, 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 sports writer I would, or any writer uh, across the board. I'd like him to find a different way because otherwise I would feel like I, he, he almost felt pressure. I don't, I don't want him to do what I'm doing because it's hard. It's a hard job, and I want him to not feel influenced by whatever poor decisions I made have made in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, moving on to the, my second area or stream of questions, uh, in the book you talk a lot about the golden era of baseball and how it's not this thing way back in the past. Uh, but we're actually living through it right now. Uh, the book came out six years ago, so I'm, my first question is, do you still believe that we're experiencing this new era of baseball brilliance? Uh, no question at all. In fact, I think it's better than it was then. You know, I think the proof in that is just the amount of young talent that you're seeing. You know, baseball is being played at just a higher level and being watched by more people than, than any other time in human history. And I find it impossible to argue otherwise. I think that I think that we have kind of a lazy culture uh of kind of sports media reporting that people will will be like well ratings for the world series were below game four of the nba finals <laughs> this game's falling apart which is of course not how baseball is consumed at all and <laughs> it's a very stupid way to keep score that way and uh where they so, take people take like one picture of an empty stadium in april you know, yeah, we're we're, we're 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 talking about Dan Ravel. We can just go ahead and say, it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I and I feel, and, but I think people of that ilk who just uh, frankly just seem to lack basic critical thinking skills. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I think that uh, I think baseball is, you know, it's certainly, it, you know, I think there is this no, one thing that baseball is getting better about now that I think even when the book came out, it wasn't being as great about. It is. I think under Rob Manfred, who I think has been a terrific uh, commissioner so far, and one of the things he's really done is he's tried to discourage this idea that you know baseball has always been plagued by nostalgia. And I mean, I legitimately mean plagued, like the notion that it's this weird sport for the last 20 years that people in charge, the people that played it, and the people that manage it, the people that write about it, have spent all this time telling you, oh, the product right now is worse than it was when I was a kid, as mm-hmm. if that's like going to be good for the game or something. And I think that I think it's wrong. And I think it's based in this kind of infantile nostalgia. And I, you know, if you look at the game now, sure, it's a different game. Uh, there are fewer stolen bases. There are, uh, there are more strikeouts. Um, uh, and I think if you 
want the world to be stuck the way it was when you were 15. Uh, you're like, well, that's different than it was. What's wrong with it? But to me, you know, the, um, the talent and skill that's on display and particularly the, uh, the availability of that talent, the number of places we're going to get it, the idea of, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, uh, Joaquin Andahar was a pitcher for the 1982 St. Louis Cardinals, and his nickname was One Tough Dominican. And the idea that he was Dominican was this major s- signature part of his personality. Like, imagine if we just had a Dominican nickname for everybody that was Dominican <laughs> now. Like, it's, the Dominicans are a large part of baseball. And I think that, you know, we spend all this time talking about how the changing demographics of the country and how it's becoming more of a Latino country and how that's becoming, you know, it's becoming a much, much larger section of the populace. They love baseball. Baseball is a is hugely popular among the Latino community. And so for me, that is a great sign for baseball. Now, if you're some 85 year old angry guy that just wants me, that thinks Mickey Mantle was the pinnacle of human achievement. And then, and, and, you know, I think that, that maybe you don't see that as a positive development, but for Mm -hmm. me, you know, the more people that like baseball and the more people that get excited about it is exciting. You know, I think it's great to see. I like to see people like the Brian McCann's kind of drummed out of baseball a little bit where they spend all this time like saying, that's not how we did it in our day, which, you know, it feels vaguely Trumpian to me. The idea yeah. that like things are things were better when it was more like. You know, people were more like, you know, me and looked like me and acted the way that I think the world should act. And I think it's great that baseball is getting away from that idea. I like a little bad flipping. I like a little showboating. I like a, like, I like people to show emotion on the field. This is a sport where literally, like, to, in case you look like you're having a moment of emotion or joy or anger, people literally cover the face with a glove. Like that is strange. That's very odd. I don't understand that that culture. And I and and uh, and you know I hate when people are like, oh, he's a classy ball player. One of, the, one of the many frustrating things about what I think is a pretty stupid uh, generalization of St. Louis Cardinals fans is this idea that like, oh, they're classy. Cardinal fans do it the right way. Like, car- first off, Cardinal almost like I don't know any Cardinals fans like. I'm sure they're out there, but they're not people that I talk to. Um, and and secondly, that's totally wrong. If you look at this Cardinals team, the most fun guys in the team are Carlos Martinez, who's this totally like 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 he is like a separate a year or two away from being Pedro. Like he has mm-hmm. this fantastic, exuberant, very enjoyable pitcher. Uh, and you know th- that's the future of the game. Manny Machado is the future of the game. Carlos Correa is the future of the game. Bryce Harper is the future of the game. For me, that is a lot more exciting. And I th- and I think we'll speak nothing but well. For the future of the game, because young people like to see people imagine this, enjoying their jobs and having fun, playing a fun game. So mm-hmm. I, I think the more we encourage that, the better off the game's going to be. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, one of the first interactions I had with your work uh, yeah. outside of the famous Bob Costas, uh, Buzz uh, Bissinger interview, uh, was watching the TED Talk. Uh, you, you actually gave it at the University of Illinois uh, back around like 2012 or so. And in that talk and in the book, uh, you mentioned that uh, only around 23,000 people were at the the game where Roger Maris uh, mm-hmm. hit his 61st homer, which is less than half of, of Yankee Stadium's capacity. Uh, and there are a lot of teams that haven't had a crowd that small the entire season this year. So with attendance at such a healthy level, uh, do you feel really confident about the, the sports future in America, or are there some things that concern you? 
Yeah, and forget attendance. Think of the number of people that are watching every game online or mm-hmm. you know, watching in their home markets. Yeah, that's what I that, that like. I'm not like being facetious or hyperbolic to say that literally more people are watching baseball right now than any other time in human history. And I mm-hmm. think I think that speaks to the idea that this great that that when Roger Maris hit that homer, the whole nation just rose up and and could have this seminal moment. It's just not true. It's just not true. And I think it's like kind of like your baby boomer. Uh, mindset that if this happened when I was 15, it was the best thing that ever could have possibly happened. And it's just, that's just wrong. Like I recognize that like, you know, I mean, I'm a huge Nirvana fan because they were really popular when I was in high school. They, that was when they broke through was when they were in high school. And I still think they're the best band in the world, but I can't lie to myself and think that they're this big influential thing and somehow they're better than the crappy music now because it's not true. And I think that's just something that I'm telling myself uh, that, I try, that I think people try to tell themselves things that when they were younger, uh, they were better. So no, I think you know, I, I think the game, you know, one, listen, everything in the world, and this includes football, is going to become more niche. We are a niche society now. The idea that there's one, that we're all going to sit around and watch one thing at once is just not the way that it works anymore. I think sports is one of the few places where that's like, but baseball's not structured that way. Baseball's structured on a regular, you know, as a, as we discussed earlier, as a, as a everyday, uh, fabric of life sort of thing. So yeah, to me, you know, I mean, right now of all the sports, baseball is the most, uh, has the most, has the best labor piece. Mm-hmm. It has, uh, the most different revenue streams coming in. Remember, it's the most forward thinking online for crying out loud. A large part of, uh, a large part of the revenue for Major League Baseball right now comes from Major League Baseball Advanced Media, who streams the NCAA tournament and Yahoo rock concerts. And like they, you know, they have now been so smart about moving into these different fields and opening up these revenue streams. There's a reason, like, you know, there's a, think of it this way. Think about how 15 years ago we were so scared about like, wow, is it just the rich teams are going to win? Is it just Yankees, Red Sox and, and, and Dodgers that's just going to want to be what it is all the time? And not only is that not the case, the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox aren't even that upset about because they're all making tons of money and everybody's happy. So uh, to think about how close to uh, – and I, listen, I know it's something in baseball's character that D. Gordon gets a PED suspension and everyone spends like four or five days going, what's wrong with baseball? What's going on? It's just baseball has like a constant chicken little sky is falling uh, aspect to it. But the game is thriving. The game is healthy. And uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's really happy for me because I really like baseball and I don't mm-hmm. want it to go anywhere. I love the, the tidbit in the book um, that in 2000, before uh, MLB got into the you know advanced media stuff and streaming stuff, if you went to MLB.com, it uh, pointed you to a Philadelphia law firm. And that's, yeah. that's 16 years ago. I mean, it's not that long ago. And in that time, they've built a several billion dollar entity in uh, MLB advanced media. Yeah, it's. I recognize that for the game on field game to be healthy, the uh, financial aspect has to be working. And I think that, uh, that to see that happening in baseball and to see the labor piece that's there, it's pretty encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said uh, commissioner Manfred was a, a good commissioner. I agree with that uh, question though. If you're commissioner of baseball for one day, what's the first thing on your to-do list? <laughs> you know, I think Manfred made some improvements from what Bud Selig uh, has done, uh, but Bud Selig did not give him like a limit. You know, I think that the, the, uh, the ship was running pretty well. And I think 
Uh, I think Manfred is the right mix of love for the game, but also kind of a wonky uh, financial look at everything. Uh, He's very similar to Adam Silver in a lot of ways. I feel like they're both, uh, and maybe all commissioners look better compared to Roger Goodell. That's very possible. But uh, so I think he's doing a great job. If I could do, I mean, I would be a terrible commissioner because I would just be like, all teams have to lose to the Cardinals. (laughs) That was my first degree. And that would be no fun for anyone else. It would probably destroy baseball. (laughs) But it would personally make me very happy. So I think... That's why I probably don't have any business being commissioned. Lastly, I can't bring you on the podcast and not talk about the Cubs and Cardinals, what you call in your book the best uh, rivalry in baseball, better than the uh, Red Sox and Yankees. I appreciated that as a as a diehard Cubs fan myself. So I want to ask, how are you and your dad handling all this Cubs success recently? He, you know, did you see that interview with Pete Rose? I don't like to quote Pete Rose on anything, but I don't think you saw that interview with Pete Rose where Pete Rose said, yeah, the Cubs are going to find a way to screw this up. And that is totally what my dad thinks. <laughs> but uh, certainly the uh, it's a terrific team. Uh, and I think there's no question they should be favored to win the World Series. Now, if you're a Cubs fan, this year has been so awesome so far and so great, and it's been the best team in baseball should never have better than one in four odds to win the playoffs. It's hard. It's weird. It's a small sample size. It's a bizarre thing. So all you, that's why getting in is really all that really matters after that. As he said, his, uh, his bleep doesn't work in the playoffs. So, <laughs> oh, man, we're never going to break through. Oh, we're never going to break through. We're never going to break through. And I think that is the fear. That, that is the fear is – you know, the, the Cardinals right now, uh, the Cardinals are – like when the, going to the NLDS last year, I felt the Cardinals had everything to lose and the Cubs had everything to gain. They gained, the Cardinals had won the division. They'd ruled the division for so long. They'd never played the Cubs in the playoffs and thought of as the better team. And so, therefore, when the Cardinals lost that series, it was unusually miserable because that, that not only did it mean that the, uh, that, that the Cubs were better, it, we, it was – it was a refutation of kind of what the Cardinals narrative had been for so long, which is that the Cubs are going to blow up. We're always going to be better. Now I think it's shifted a little bit in that the Cardinals are clearly the underdog to the Cubs. If it does come turn out that the Cardinals play the Cubs in the playoffs, which I think is possible, the Cardinals mm-hmm. are, like, are going to win the division. The Cardinals are in the wild card spot right now, and I think are built well to have a pretty good team this year, if not as good as the Cubs. We could have a rematch of that in the NLDS, and I think it would be a complete shift. I think then there's more pressure on the Cubs. Everyone expects them to win. The Cardinals are kind of the underdog in this situation. No one will be rooting for the underdog in this situation, <laughs> to be very clear. But uh, certainly, I think that... Uh, uh, you know, it's amazing to me. Mike, the guy in the book, um, I talk to him all the time. He now he moved to Texas. He's not even in Illinois anymore, which is I feel really bad for him. This is his first year outside of Illinois, and this is happening <laughs> for the cops. And um, and he, uh, I was, I talked to him about it, and he's like. I mean, they're winning the World Series this year. Like, he's just, like, all that Cub doubt and all that Cub fear is just gone. He just doesn't have it. He's like, well, yeah, we're winning the World Series. This is this is the year. This is the one we've all been waiting for. That is a psychologically perilous position to hold, I would argue. <laughs> I think you're asking for trouble for that because it's really hard. And listen, if the Cubs do it this year, it's going to be amazing. It'll be the 85 Bears. It'll be that level of a cultural phenomenon, if not even bigger. So, um uh, it'll be an amazing thing. But if they don't win the World Series, and again, the odds are very much against them winning the World Series, just like they're against anybody winning the World Series. They're less against the Cubs winning the World Series. But the odds are always against anybody winning the World Series. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea, uh, if it doesn't go down this year, I think there's going to be all that angst that Cubs fans have had for years and years that they've kind of put on a hold for this year because everything is so fun, the team is so good, that I think that will all come back with a vengeance. So, uh, uh, And uh, I, I won't lie. I'll say I'll, if that happens, I'll 
kind of enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing, that if the the rules are flipped, uh, the Cardinals have the opportunity to crush the Cubs, which is, uh, I'm sure, a lot of Cardinal it, fans, what, it would, what they're hoping I, for. I, I think it would be more crushing. Because i got to tell you, as a Cardinal fan, that NLDS was unpleasant last year. That was... <laughs> Very unhappy. I will have nightmares of fly balls going over Cardinals, Cardinals relievers and right fielders' heads for the rest of my life. Like over that the score, was, over the scoreboard too. Over the scoreboard, yeah, landing on the scoreboard. I think it's still there. So you know, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, I, that was a very miserable series. But you know, I, I, I think you know we got over it. The Cubs didn't win the World Series, which made it easier. So, um, uh, but if the if the Cubs have this season, this wonderful season where everything is going wonderful. And then the Cardinals beat them in the playoffs. That that's going to be rough for a lot of Cubs fans to handle, oh, yeah. no question. Oh yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Will really enjoyed uh, the book and would uh, encourage uh, baseball fans everywhere to uh, to read it. Are we winning? Is the name of it. And um, yeah, appreciate uh, appreciate you joining us. Of course, my pleasure. Thank. Uh, I'm happy. To come on. Yep. Go Cubs. Ah. <laughs> Thanks again to Will Leach for taking the time to be on our podcast. And now we will probably lose many of you with our next uh, segments. But first up, our second recap of a MacGyver episode in three-ish minutes. This week it might go long because, as promised, we have a special guest. Uh, Our brother Kevin is joining us from Chicago. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, the the MacGyver episode we are recapping this week is season two, episode two, the Eraser. I guess uh, first off, Paul and Kevin, uh, does one of you want to uh, to recap the episode? Yeah, well, it was a fantastic episode, and it was actually a bit of a surprise because uh, it turns out that the episode that I had seen a few weeks ago uh, was actually the sequel to this episode. Mm-hmm. So. It's, answered a lot of questions I had from that first episode <laughs> that I watched. Um, but yeah, I can recap it pretty well. I it's think a, it's I a doozy it. of a plot line. It, yeah, it, you kind of have to pause it and really think about it uh, if you're going to follow along well. But essentially, there's this fellow, Mr. Simpson, is it? Is that his name, Mr. Simpson? Sim- Simmons. Yeah, something like that. He... Uh, He's got some government secrets. I believe it's a top-notch navigational system that the government has developed, mm-hmm. which uh, I kind of left me wondering how good the navigational system is. I mean, is what we have now with our GPS actually better than than what he was trying to sell off then? I to the know. East Germans, right? To the East Germans, yes. So uh, he, he took the navigational system from the government and uh, sold it to um, famous mob boss, uh, Father Chucky or something like that. Paul, can you help me out on the name? Uh, Papa Chuck? Papa Chuck, yeah. Papa, Papa Chuck. Actually seemed like a pretty nice dude until the end. Um, but uh, this fellow ends up selling Papa Chuck, I believe, a crate of sauerkraut or something <laughs> along those lines instead of the navigational system. And he comes away with almost a million dollars, he and his girlfriend do. Papa Chuck and his men figure it out pretty quickly and decide that they need to take out this gentleman who sold the uh, sauerkraut. 
and uh, Jimmy the Eraser has just gotten out of prison. He was in prison for about 10 years, um, and I guess he's a top-of-the-line top hitman um, in their business. So he convinces Jimmy to take out the guy who sold the sauerkraut, um, which is kind of expected. You know, you can't, you can't lie and steal about a million dollars from Papa Chuck without um, having some retaliation. The thing is, Jimmy doesn't want to get back in the business. He would prefer just to go somewhere warm and watch kids play baseball, uh, which is kind of a strange ambition, but that's what he wanted to do. Well, Papa Chuck convinces him to uh, give it another shot. So he takes the assignment to kill this gentleman who sold them the sauerkraut. What's his name again? Uh, Mr. Simmons. Mr. Simmons, okay. Well, the government is kind of privy to what Mr. Simmons is doing. So uh, Pete Thornton from the Phoenix Foundation is assigned by the government to track this guy down and figure out who he's been giving all these government secrets to. So it's kind of a race between uh, Pete, who recruits MacGyver um, to help him out. It's a race between them and uh, Papa Chuck, Jimmy the Eraser, and all those guys. So that's the basis of the episode. Jimmy is pretty good at what he does, and he convinces MacGyver that he is... uh, Mr. Simmons is a estranged father, I believe, <laughs> and that he just wants to track him down to try to reconcile. But he's pretty insistent that MacGyver keeps that part of things a secret mm-hmm. if he does find Mr. Simmons. MacGyver is able to track him down. Jimmy the Eraser is right there on his tail. Uh, Jimmy and his boys try to murder Mr. Simmons. Um, MacGyver kind of steps in between and Jimmy is faced with the decision of killing MacGyver and Mr. Simmons and fulfilling his contract to Papa Chuck or not killing them and starting a new life. And in what is by far the best scene in the entire episode, MacGyver says to Jimmy, I've never been this wrong about a person. I I do think that you want that new life down south where it's warm watching kids play baseball, and you can have it if you just walk away. So Jimmy decides to let him go. Unfortunately, Papa Chuck decides to put a hit out on Jimmy, and Jimmy's not really going to get to start that new life unless they think he's dead. Mm -hmm. So MacGyver searches for Jimmy because he knows that Jimmy needs help, finds him at a ball diamond watching some little leaguers play. Very dangerous. Points out uh, points out the hitch in uh, that kid's swing. Yeah, yeah. Points out the, the guy can't hit the high fastball. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, very astute observation. Uh, he's got a future as a scout, without a doubt. Uh, the guyver finds Jimmy at this ball diamond. Uh, Papa Chuck's guys also find Jimmy. Jimmy and MacGyver make a run for it. They go into this big warehouse, um, which MacGyver finds himself in frequently. Not this exact warehouse, but places like this. There's lots of chemicals and wires and rope. This one was full of balloons. Yeah, kind of creepy. I couldn't figure out what the place actually was. Um, Yeah, lots of balloons. So uh, Jimmy and MacGyver are hiding in this warehouse, 
and MacGyver has this idea. He sees some some sort of reflective balloon material. So MacGyver stages a couple different mirrors where Jimmy's men look up into the window and they think they're not Jimmy's men. Papa Chuck's men look up into the window, think they're seeing Jimmy. So they take a couple shots from outside towards the window. Jimmy grabs his stomach, pretending like he's been hit. MacGyver also had some red paint or dye of some kind. So they splashed it on, MacGyver splashes it on Jimmy. So by the time Papa Chuck's men get up there, uh, they see Jimmy laying on the ground with red stuff all over him. And they're just about to finish him off when they hear some police sirens. And they realize they don't have enough time to shoot him again because that would take way too long. <laughs> and they just run away. But it's not actually police sirens. It's MacGyver behind some sort of shelf with a some sort of material where he's kind of like humming, buzzing on it. And it's making... A, a very good fake police siren sound. Mm-hmm. So Papa Chuck's men think that Jimmy's been killed. They run away. MacGyver sets Jimmy up with a pretty sweet gig. It looks like it may be some sort of independent league where he is an equipment manager, it seems, <laughs> down south. So that's that's the episode. It's a great recap. Thank you. Did I go over three minutes? Uh, I think so, but uh, I think... Uh, this episode deserved it, especially with you as a as our guest. Uh, a few uh, baseball-related tidbits that I wanted to mm-hmm. pick out from this episode, and there was lots of them, because uh, like you were saying, Jimmy, big baseball guy, um, he actually played in the majors, or was on a major league roster, or was yeah, like he was like the 26th man, but never he traveled with the team and drove the team bus he, for two weeks. If I remember weeks. right, he drove the bus. But he, if there was right. an injury, he was going to be on the team. Right. Love what you've done with the place. Right. Hockey. Beautiful game. I don't like the jerks who just go there for the fighting, though. Did you ever play? I skated on my ankles. Baseball was my game. 47 Braves. That's when they were in Boston. Get out of here. You were in the majors? For two whole weeks. They called me up in case the other guy got hurt. The bum stayed healthy. I never got into the game. They had me driving the team bus. But for two weeks, I was a major leaguer. No kidding. Kevin, mm-hmm. you, do you know who the, the best player, best position player on the 47 Braves was? On the 47 Braves. Uh, Third baseman, think about uh, Father's Day, perhaps a member of our family. A member of our family. Best third baseman. I don't think I understand the clue very well. Did uh, it was it was family play third base for the Boston Braves? And it was uh, it was Bob Elliott. Oh, that's hilarious! I was just gonna guess that to be funny, but yeah. there actually was a Bob Elliott. Yeah, American League MVP that year. Really? Mm-hmm. How about that? For uh, being modest on us all these years. I know four ten on base percentage. Maybe that was very, the bum that Jimmy got called up to be the backup for. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, another baseball tidbit. Uh, at one point, Jimmy claims to have ran a uh, home to first in 3.5 seconds. Yes. <laughs> I, did, I did some research on that. Last year, the fastest uh, player on average from home to first was Billy Burns of the A's, and his average really? time was 3.85 seconds. Wow. Billy Burns was fastest. Yep, and then the, the, fastest, the fastest single time 
was Billy Hamilton of the Reds, yeah. and his fastest time was uh, 3.52. Oh, wow. Jimmy's got wheels. So I hate to call Jimmy a liar. Jimmy Kendall was his well, name, uh, but I hate, Jimmy, uh, he's probably lying. Jimmy has uh, seen better days because <laughs> part of the storyline is that his knee was no good anymore. <laughs> And it really wasn't good. Part of me wonders if the actor who played Jimmy I was going to say that had some sort of knee problem or knee operation shortly before airing it, and they just had to write that. Now in. I could I couldn't help but laugh every time there was a scene in which he was he was running. Oh, it was horrifying. Now in the one, in in the sequel episode, does he still have the knee problem? I don't remember it being quite that bad. Um, but I'll first order of business is rewatching the sequel now that I understand the the backstory to everything that happened. But there Absolutely. wasn't that one scene where he had to jump. It wasn't high, maybe about five feet off a little ledge, and it looked rough when he landed. Mm-hmm. See, he's either he's a great actor or he really did have some knee issues in that episode. Another quote uh, that uh, hits close to home with our family: MacGyver at one point. Says, uh, says the following, whenever I see a car phone, I can't help wondering whether the person who owns it is important or wants everyone else to think he's important. Yep. Our mother, famous for having a car phone in her van for several years, yeah. uh, said, do you think mom was important or just wanted us to think she was important? Yeah, no, I think she was very important. Well, I think our family as a whole was very important in the yep. community. Absolutely. Um, now, that bag phone was, was really good to have. I think the problem, though, is that we had it just a little too long. So it was normal for a while, but then we still had it at the point where people had actual cell phones, and it, it was just hilarious looking. Yep, I agree. All right, well, uh, Kevin and Paul, you got anything else? Well, I just I want to say that I think it's very nice of you, Peter, to put uh, – will leech in front of this segment because there probably weren't going to be very many people tuning in for that segment, but you know, there are a lot of people who tune in regularly for the MacGyver segment. Oh yeah. So this way you're able to let Will feel kind of good about himself getting some more listeners. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll have to have you on again to uh, recap another MacGyver episode here shortly. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks guys. Thanks Kev. All right, so thanks to Kevin for joining us once again. Uh, probably later than it's ever been before. Let's uh, do some out of the box. So uh, it's not really out of the box, Paul, but... Uh, More like the top of the sixth. Yes. Uh, so what article are you talking about this week? Uh, I'm talking about an article from Zach Mizell of Cleveland.com. The title is A Sunday in June, Father's Day Tales About Dads, Sons, and Baseball's Bonding Power. Uh, it was a fantastic piece um, about a unique father-son baseball tradition. Did you uh, happen to see this article, Pete? I didn't, no. So Mike Chernoff, who's the GM of the Indians, has played catch with his dad uh, once a month for almost 30 years. And uh, Chernoff, the son, obviously lives in Cleveland because he's mm-hmm. the GM, but his dad lives in New Jersey. I think I have – this is sounding more familiar – um, so when he was younger and living at home, obviously it was pretty easy to get one game of catching uh, every month. But now that um, he's older and they live in different states and hundreds of miles apart, uh, they've had to uh, get a little more creative. 
So they've played uh, catch in airport parking lots a lot. They recently played catch in a Whole Foods parking lot in New Jersey. Um, the alleyway behind Grand Central Station in Manhattan. Um, they've played catch in two feet of snow. So the yeah, the article just talks about kind of why they have um, kind of chosen this as their tradition. Um, quick quote from Mike, the son. He says, in today's world, it's hard to get away from the TV or the craziness of what's going on. It's a way almost to be at peace or calm and just focus on the relationship between the two of us. And then uh, Zach Mizell, the, the author of the piece, goes on to write about um, his experience or uh, what he remembers as his last experience of playing catch with his dad before he uh, developed cancer. So it was a really powerful piece and interesting and would highly recommend you go read it for yourself. You said the, the Indians GM plays catch with his dad once a month. Is that correct? Once a month, yeah, for the, almost 30 years, since uh, Mike, the son, was six years old. Wow. Have you thought about doing any traditions like that with Benson? Yeah, I was, I was telling Kate about this earlier today, and I feel like it's a, that's a fairly e- easy tradition to do from, like, the age of five until 18. But mm-hmm. now they're do- they, like, are doing flights just to play catch. Yeah. It's 20. They're, they define a game of catch as 25 throws apiece. So. <laughs> They're really, really flying to see each other for like five minutes. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's good stuff. Uh, I had thought about that because in Will's book, um, he keeps score every game and has My guy. has the box score of every game he's ever been to. And I am always, when I hear about that, I had known he did that before I read the book. But um, I'm always jealous of that because I don't have a list of all the games I've been to. And uh, every time I think of that, I think, oh, I should keep. You know, keep start keeping track now, but I always forget. So, uh, you like keep keep them in a folder or something. No, or? he's got a bunch of books of of uh, score books. Um, so yeah, you should keep track of all the games Benson goes to. Yeah, he hasn't been to one yet, so still time. Yep. I do not have an article this week. I wanted to give Will some more time. I also did not uh, prepare for this section. So that was a great out of the box by Paul. You should read his article in the time that you would have listened to me. Talk about another article. Uh, next up, we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right. Um, that was unprecedented, Pete. Never before have you failed to prepare for a podcast. Yes. Uh, you did make it up for it with a great interview, though. Mm-hmm. All right. For uh, our TWTW segment this week, uh, I looked at the worst players on postseason teams in the last five years. And this came about after watching the Nationals play because they have two players that right now have negative wars. Uh, Pete, do you know who those two are? I will guess uh, like starting Starters. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, uh, Ben Revere, negative seven, and Ryan Zimmerman. Yep, negative two. So it just got me thinking after watching them play. Uh, like, what are some recent examples of kind of the worst players on playoff teams? And so I look back um, to the start of the wild card era, 2012, and the two worst um, are Michael Young and Billy Butler. So in 2012, Michael Young had a negative two war and was the Rangers starting first baseman. Um, 
he wasn't if you look at his numbers they weren't brutal but because he played for space and mm-hmm. war is a it's a contextual stat compares him to all the other first basemen his OPS was brutal um it was 85 points below the league average for a first baseman that year um and he did start in the Rangers one playoff game wild card game against the Orioles which they lost um so he's by far the worst at negative 2 um, but Billy Butler had a negative six in 2014, and he actually had 42 postseason at bats. Said negative six, or negative 0.6. Sorry. Okay. Um, for the season, his OPS was 31 points below league average for a DH, and he only had nine home runs. Uh, he was sort of a fan favorite, and if you remember, he signed with Oakland the following mm-hmm. year, which was a terrible signing. Very strange signing by these. Very, very strange. Yeah. Um, so those two were the worst. Looking at other possibilities this year, you have Prince Fielder is probably the most likely candidate. He is now at negative 1.6 through 268 plate appearances. The Rangers look like a, a near lock for the playoffs, and Prince uh, continues to scuffle. So he is a likely candidate. Um, Kendris Morales for the Royals, he's at negative 1.2 through 246 at-bats, another candidate. And then uh, Revere and Zimmerman, who I already mentioned. Um, but those, uh, Billy Butler, Michael Young, two worst uh, players on postseason teams in recent history. And that's only position players? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yep. All right, well, that was TWTW. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. This is Peter with Sounds of the Game. Uh, before we get to our main clip, I wanted to mention this uh, for our hockey fan listeners out there. Mike Emmerich, also known as Doc Emmerich, I'm told, um, he is a f- famous hockey announcer, does the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, kind of the most prominent hockey announcer, is also a huge Pirates fan, and it's always been on his bucket list to call at least one inning of a Pirates game. And uh, that's going to happen here in about a month, or less than a month. Um, he will be calling a baseball game with Bob Costas on MLB Network on July 8th. It's a Cubs-Pirates game uh, in Pittsburgh. And Emmerich um, and Costas apparently have been friends, and uh, they're going to do that game together on uh, July 8th. So that should be a fun um, fun little thing. There's an article about it in the New York Times um, so I will link to that in the podcast episode page. We also tweeted it out if you're curious about that. All right, so for our main uh, uh, sounds of the game this week, uh, we are going to look at a father-son broadcasting combo on this Father's Day. Um, I'm sure there have been lots of uh, fathers and sons that have gone into broadcasting together, um, but uh, just one that I had thought of off the top of my head was Marv Albert and his son Kenny Albert. Marv is famous for his work in the NBA. He has been uh, the voice of the NBA for decades now. He called the finals um, kind of in the the heart of Jordan's uh, era, the 1990s. Um, But when the finals went away from NBC, he he has not called the finals game since then. Um, This year he was doing the Western Conference Finals, the Thunder uh, Warrior Series on TNT. Um, He is 75 years old which is uh, older than you would expect, or at least I expected. Yeah. Um, he did do a little work for Major League Baseball for NBC in 1986-1988, but has mainly been a, a basketball guy and a little bit of football. But right now he just does basketball for TNT. His son, Kenny, 
does play-by-play uh, for every sport but basketball, ironically. Uh, he does hockey, football, and baseball. And uh, the clip we're going to play today comes from the 2005 ALDS series that he announced last year for FS1. That was the Blue Jays-Rangers series, uh, one of the best um, series in playoff history, honestly. Um, and so he did those games with Harold Reynolds and Tom Verducci, and he did uh, Game 5 of that. That so flip. Yes, the big Game 5. Um, so the clip we're going to play comes in the bottom of the 7th. It is a tie game, 3-3 uh, three to three in the bottom of the 7th. Two outs, runners on 1st and 3rd, and Jose Bautista comes to the plate. Of course, that was Jose Bautista's immortal home run. The moment that started it all. Yes. Uh, the bench is actually clear about 20 seconds after uh, that clip ended there. Um, so Blue Jays won that series, uh, went on to lose to the Royals in the ALCS, and of course that led to the uh, punch of Odor of Bautista uh, this year. Um, Paul, I, one thought I had was that Sam Dyson, who gave up all these runs, um, the Rangers defense was terrible, but Dyson was the pitcher at this time. I wondered if Matt Bush uh, would be the pitcher if, if that happened this year. Yeah, it's possible. Dyson's actually been pretty lights out. Is he the closer, though? Yeah, he's the closer. Yeah, so this would have been kind of set up in the seventh inning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. also thought about what an incredible series that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally... Uh, the, Especially the, for a five-game series. The cameras were literally shaking, if you watch the video of that. Uh, but heaven forbid uh, Bautista show any emotion when he hits the homer. Exactly. What did uh, what did Byron call him? I believe uh, goober was the word he used. Yeah, that's right. Yep, uh, I disagree. All right, well, that does it for Sounds of the Game. Next up, we have bottom of the ninth. First up. Paul, we got say my name. Say my name, say my name. All right, uh, this week for my name, uh, we're going contemporary, and we're going with someone's real name, none of the nickname stuff that you don't like. 
Despise. Uh, the name this week, Booth Bonzer. Are you familiar with Booth Bonzer? Yeah, sounds familiar. 6'4", righty, that pitched for the Twins, Athletics, and Red Sox from 2006 to 2010. Uh, his best season was his rookie year. He went 7-6 and six with a 4.22 ERA, a lifetime ERA of 5.18. Uh, he was actually a first-round pick of the Giants and was traded for A.J. Pierzynski. Um, he legally changed his name to Booth after the Giants took him in the first round. What was his real name? Uh, I believe it was John, but not positive on that. Um, as I was researching Booth, I came across his Twitter account. No one's seen him since 2010. No. Uh, some of my, some of his recent tweets, um, and by some, I mean all of his recent tweets, uh, June 9th, uh, no good twins. June 9th, come on twins, let's go. Uh, May 18th, Red Sox look good. Who watching the the game? And my favorite, April 15th, uh, love all the twins fans. Eight minutes later, where's all my twins fans? Any uh, any response to these tweets? Uh, there's a little bit of reaction, but it made me think, what is your Twitter philosophy? I generally have a, a tweeting philosophy that... Um, like if someone were going back to read a specific tweet, they wouldn't need any additional context. Hmm. So if I'm watching a game, I wouldn't say awful call or something like that. Hmm. Um, I believe that's more of a text. But are you – do you have a similar uh, philosophy? I think if the game is big enough, uh, so like Super Bowl or tonight, I think you could tweet something with without any context for it. The only time I think I've ever done that is like if I'm at a, a uh, call a ref makes. Hmm. But. I think if you're at the game, it, it uh, influences it too. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with uh, not play-by-play, play, but updates if the person is at the game. Mm-hmm. But So that's a booth for you. Possible future podcast guest? Possibly, yeah. Sounds like he's pretty active on Twitter. All right, so that was a good name. My question this week, Yahoo question of the week, comes from David, but not David uh, in Chicago but uh, another David Yahoo user. His question, who was the best father-son combination to play the game of baseball? The two that occur to me are Barry and Bobby Bonds, or Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey Jr., or am I missing someone? What is the best major league combination of all time? Uh, So, Paul, do you have an answer to this before I read the best one? Uh, The Bonds, I think, would be the best if you look at war or some other cumulative measure. Sure. The Boons were also decent, right? Yep. 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 So the, the best answer um, says that uh, just based on numbers, it's Bobby and Barry Bonds. Natural ability is probably Ken Griffey Sr. and Jr. It's a pretty subjective thing. Uh, and then he says the best pitchers are Dizzy and Steve Trout. No relation to Mike Trout. Hmm. I look into it. Uh, some other great father-son combos, according to this fellow. Ray, Bob, and Brett and Aaron Boone. Uh, Buddy and David and Mike Bell. Sam, Jerry, and Scott uh, Harrison. And Jerry Jr. Harrison. Or Jerry Harrison Jr. Uh, Felipe and Moise Salou. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cecil and Prince Fielder. Tim Raines Sr. and Tim Raines Jr. Jose Cruz Sr. and Jose Cruz Jr. Um... Mel and Todd uh, Sidemeyer. 
um, Steve and Nick Swisher, Sandy and Roberto, slash Sandy Elmore, and George and Dick and Dave Sisler. Hmm. So not, uh, not an incredibly impressive list, maybe not what you would expect. Um, but yeah, the Bonds are definitely the best, and I would say that they probably have the best uh, uh, natural ability as well. But the uh, Griffies are second on that list. Uh, Cal Ripken's uh, senior was a manager, but he never played in the, the major leagues. So the Ripkins don't count. That list didn't include, or it was probably before uh, Drake and Adam LaRoche. There you go. The most recent famous. The famous, yep. All right. Uh, so lastly, pick your team. 26 weeks in the baseball season, Paul and I pick a team each week. Can't pick the same team twice. And their record in that week is um, our record overall. So last week, Paul, you picked the Royals, who are 5-1 and one as of this recording. I believe they're on extra innings. Yep, bottom of the 12th. So that could be 6-1, and one, which I believe would be right up there for the best uh, weekly record so far. We haven't, none of us have gone perfect. Um, so that was a good selection. I had the Marlins, and Kevin made that selection for me, actually. And uh, they went 5-1. and one. So hmm. great, great selection by Kevin. Uh, brings our overall records to 45 and 23 for me and 40 and 29 for Paul. Um, so who's your team this week, Paul? I'm going with the Rockies. They've been playing a little bit better recently. They've, I think, won two out of three series. And uh, they, um, if I, they're a bad team. And so if I'm going to pick them, it might as well be when they're playing decent. Yep. So the Rockies. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, my team is the Orioles. They play the Padres and the Rays at home this week. All right, well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a rating and review there. That really does help get the word out to more people. You can send us an email at afootinthebox at gmail.com. We would love to talk about it on the podcast or just uh, dialogue with you uh, over email. So afootinthebox at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at A Foot in the Box. Uh, check out our online stuff at afootinthebox.com, including last week's uh, Brothers Road Trip podcast. That's a good listen. Uh, not, not too much uh, uh, stuff that's time-sensitive there. So right, yeah. Timeless, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week is a normal podcast. The week after that is a special episode. I will be on Friendcation with my friend Matt's. Uh, long-time listeners, you might recall, last year we recorded it live from an Indians-Cubs game. It was quite the thrill. Uh, so this week we'll, uh, we'll think of something special to do, but that's two weeks from this episode. Uh, that's all I got. Paul, you got anything else? Nope. Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week.
about that bonus I asked you for? It's all taken care of. New name, new personal history. Tell me, why'd you want to relocate him in Florida? Well, I found him a job. Something I think you'll like. Hey, Louis, I need some oil for my glove. You don't need oil, you need glue. <laughs> Two errors on one play yesterday. I lost it in the sun. It was a ground ball. <laughs> when I was in the bigs, we didn't use oil. Spit we used. You played? That's right, 47 Braves. And I can honestly say for a two-week stretch, the team couldn't go anywhere without me. Yeah. I think you'll like it a lot. <laughs>